Today on the Potential Psychology Podcast. Draw two big axes, you create two extreme scenarios on either side about what the future might look like. And the game that I use when I'm working with children is make headlines. Make headlines from the Telegraph, make headlines from the AFR, make headlines from, you know, the, I think Dolly Magazine is no longer no, in existence. What magazines era. are? <laughs> I don't even know that there's many magazines anymore. It's all TikTok. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Okay. Make a TikTok video uh, claim. Yeah, but, you know, what would be those clickbaity headlines? But what it does is it forces you, by using extremes, it forces you out of that, I'm scared of the unknown. I'm going to lose what I got. It makes it very plain that there are two sides to this. It's your actions that decide which one's going to be output. Welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, psychologist Ellen Jackson, and this is the show in which we explore what it is to be human and how we as humans can fulfill our potential. Welcome back to the Potential Psychology Podcast. And I believe this is the fifth of six conversations that I'm having with Dr. Mm. Joe Sweeney regarding the future of work and the role I think that parents, we think, or we know perhaps, we're exploring at least, that parents can have in preparing children for the future of work students. But I think there's a a big bit, and we've touched on this in places, Joe. a a big bit in what we can learn about ourselves probably as as adults Mm. and, and work and other you know, related topics. But welcome. Welcome back. Thank you. Lovely to have you here again. And I'm good. So I have every week, I think, throw to you and say, what is it that we're going to talk about in today's conversation? Well, I wanted to start by talking a little bit more about, you know, the realities of what's wrong with the future of work. You know, what what could go wrong? What are going to be the challenges? So almost, you know, the flipping the discussion around hope that we had and taking a look at, you know, what are we going to need to deal with? Because there are some very real big issues to deal with. But then what I'd like to do is look at, okay, so what do we do? How do we prepare our kids for not just being successful, really thriving in this new environment where there are some pretty tough economic, social, and quite frankly, personal uh, challenges to address? Yeah, fantastic. And, And what was it from the survey data that parents were most concerned about? Were they raising concerns about these topics or are these things that you're able to kind of add through the lens of your knowledge and research in this area? Well, one of the things that we did ask was, we've mentioned this earlier, how how fearful are you for the future? And and it was predominantly that. There was a very large portion, more than 50% were definitely very scared about the future, very, very worried. When we dug a little further, they were actually quite hopeful that their kids would be really good citizens and would probably solve some of these problems. We also ask questions around what work would look like. And the responses were very, very mixed. I'm still trying to figure out what it all means because out of the data itself, we couldn't say that there was a specific social mindset. Mm. Big number of people thought that the workforce would increasingly move towards this idea of the gig economy where no one would have a secure job. It was every person for themselves, dog-eat-dog sort of world. And yet others believed firmly that corporations would would move towards being a social good, more like the original Corporations Act was designed to do. Corporations were actually designed not as a profit centre, but as a way of creating a social good with public money. So there was a strong interest from one group that were thinking that we would head towards this more uh, you know, Star Trek utopian sort of future. And then there was everything in between. Mm. 
So the reality is we don't know. It's really easy to predict where technology is going to go. And we have some very strong predictions that I, I think are pretty accurate about where things such as machine learning and AI and automation are going to go and the impact that will have on certain areas of the work. But we really don't know what the workforce itself is going to look like. And that's reflected in the parents' answers. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what's your best guess? What, what are the issues? I, I think it's an interesting, that dichotomy, and I think I can sort of understand it from a, a purely layperson's point of view if you project yourself forward, you know, there's been such rapid change. So we might have particular ideas and it probably is just born of our own individual experience of, oh, it will go much more towards, you know, every man for himself. Um, you know, there's part of me as having worked as a consultant for a long time can kind of see that future. But then, yes, when you talk about the role of organisations for social good and employers for social good, we're certainly seeing that start to shift in terms of the work around corporate social responsibility and corporate citizenship and, you know, some really interesting conversations there. So I can see where this dichotomy is kind of, and, and, and more than just that, that blend of everything in between is coming from. What do you reckon? So what I like to use when trying to predict these things is a formal model called scenario planning, which is where you actually, you know, create a couple of extreme examples and then plot things between those examples. We'll put some links to that that work um, mm. if you're interested. Yep. But let's take a look at some of the big mega trends that are going to impact our economy because the economy is really, if you think of it, you can think of it as a placeholder for how employment happens. Climate change, global warming, all of this area, the, the desperate need for us to address a very big economic impact that's coming our way. Um, you know, the science is very much in on that, has been actually since the turn of the century, but we now start to see what are going to be the ramifications of that. Now, that opens up opportunities in several areas. So at one extreme, let's say that we've got you know, massive environmental collapse. This is scenario planning. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but you, you look at extremes in this. You've got environmental collapse. Well, that means new cities, it needs new habitation, it means new medical, it needs, you know, there's all these new jobs in that area. Now, let's take a look at the other extreme, which is we move rapidly towards renewable and carbon capture and various other technologies that will correct some of the impacts of climate change. Again, we see new building opportunities, we see entirely new education, we see entirely new careers and industries coming from that. We see new infrastructure, everything from roads, uh, changing the transport system. There's, there's huge of that. So if you just took a look at that one mm. <laughs> across there, there are opportunities. There's also challenges. If you take a look at another type of scenario, we, we could cross that with, say, the impact of destabilization of the world's, you know, you've got China mm. and Russia geopolitical and US kind of and, yep. and Australia, all these yep. geopolitical things happening. Does that start to turn the corner and head us back to what we were seeing in the 90s where there was much more harmony? Or does it head in the other direction? And again, you know, could be very, very fearful either way, but there's opportunities in all of those areas. Everything from, you know, if you're being a real cynic, we're going to have lots of wars, so there's going to be more military jobs, <laughs> to the opposite, which is there's going to be a lot more work for translators, for multilingual um, skills and so forth. So you look at these various options. Now, how does that impact the economy? I think we're going to see in some countries that have had large unemployment, 
which is different from underemployment, I'll get to that in a second, we will see an increased use of the gig economy. And for those countries, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That will lift out of poverty vast numbers of people. Now, we're not just talking about Uber. We're talking about software coders. We're talking about people who are literally research assistants. Uh, For example, that's how I hired Jay. Uh, She is my research assistant and she has become my right-hand man, and now she is a full employee of, of, of my company. So you've got those types of you know, growing out of what can be quite extreme poverty situations through a gig economy. But in the West, the gig economy is actually driving people into, a, into poverty there. You've got corporations that are now you know, slapping them across their head, the, the work of uh, people like Edward Deming, just hiring and firing people willy-nilly just treating them as human capital, which I think is one of the worst phrases ever invented, <laughs> where people, mm. people. <laughs> but, that, but that notion of the disposable worker has actually really disadvantaged them because now those workers have no loyalty yeah. to the companies and they're going, why? Why is everyone leaving? Why are we losing all these incredibly valuable skills? Why are people working to rule and not working for mm. love of the job? Well, don't have loyalty and you don't have anything to love so the really high performing corporations and i I looked up the data and and corporations that have these real strong whys going Mm. back to the previous discussion they have 40 percent stronger return from their workforce so it's a significant benefit so organizations are going back to realizing that maybe they need to invest a little bit more time in the people and loyalty in their people maybe it is a we situation Sitting through all of this, we've got the technology which is enabling people to literally work from anywhere. And the big realization, the big aha moment from the pandemic was, you know what? I don't need to go into the office. And that's not for all jobs, but for a lot of jobs, you know, I can be anywhere. And then the HR department says, yeah, you can be anywhere. That means that we can hire from anywhere. That means we can get really great expertise and have them sitting on some beach. It's not about paying them less. This is the smart companies. It's not about paying them less. It's about getting the best, getting Mm. exactly what we want who fits our culture. And then you've got discussions around things such as the four-day work week. There's experiments going on about that. Even universal income, which is where there is a base wage paid to everyone in the society. Now, both of those things are proving to have really quite some positive impacts. You know, there's challenges with them, of course. But I see them pretty much as a... They're almost a symptom of a system of economy that's changing rather than a solution. Mm. And what's changing is automation. It is AI. It is robotics. It's all of this stuff which is happening. So the future of work, I think the biggest disruptor out of all of this, you know, we can talk about climate change and all these other things, that will be the field. But the big disruptor for the human will be the technology, technology and the robots that come in. The software robots, the hardware robots, the whole lot. And so we talked a little bit about that in a previous episode, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about it in our next conversation. But I just wanted to make an mm. well, what I felt was an interesting observation, Joe, as you're articulating all of that, because I think 
And again, I mean, I come back to, you know, how do our brains work? How do our minds work? So in each of those scenarios, as you mapped them out, you spoke about, you know, what are the challenges and what are perhaps some of the risks, but then what are the opportunities here? And it always strikes me, and whether it's conversations that are in the media or conversations that we hear publicly, that we are so attuned to what are the risks and threats, what are the challenges? So, you know, renewable energy, for example, and and immediately the conversation seems to go to, but what about all the people who work in the current current energy sectors, they will lose their jobs. And, you know, at a micro level, yes, that that happens, that changes, you know, that's the nature of change and it's the nature of change in every industry. And having worked with the automotive industry here in Australia in the past and doing kind of helping people with transition to new career because those industries were shutting down, people have to deal with that at the micro level. But if we take a step back at the more macro level, you know, a new industry such as renewables brings with it so many new jobs, you know, it it might be in slightly different locations. They might be different skill sets. We need to train for those. We need to, but this idea that change always means loss, which I know, I mean, it's just the way the human brain is wired up. We have this negativity bias. We Mm. also value the things that we have currently more than we value the things that we have in the future. So the the fear of losing something Mm. means more to us emotionally than the opportunity of gaining something else. This is huh, a yes. It has a name that is not coming to me right now, so I'm going to. It's fear of yeah stupidity, maybe. Well, <laughs> just being human, I think. Um, no, there's a specific term for this experience, but yeah, you know, if, when you frame it up that way to say, yeah, there there will be risk, but there's also opportunities, and I think that's something that at a at a personal level, you know, even for parents who are thinking about what might happen as things shift and change, there will be, and I know we've, we've mentioned this in the past, there will be jobs that don't exist now. There will be whole industries and sectors oh, yes. that don't exist now. There will be lots of cool stuff. Hopefully that will be better in lots of ways for our kids than exists right now. Or is that just the optimist in me? No, I look, I, I, I fully, everything you've said is true. We know that with change comes, uh, you know, let's call it disruption. Um, I use the term disruption very specifically. It's neither good nor bad. But when you look at employment, and let's take a look at the, the, the climate, the renewables issue. There's been multiple reports done globally that indicate the, the transition to renewables will create a lot more jobs than are lost. But that doesn't alleviate the pain of the people mm. who are losing their jobs. So... What you need is policy. Ideally, you'd have policy to move those people into new areas. And sometimes that can be quite difficult. Interestingly, in the renewables, a lot of the skills required by the mines and so forth in Australia, they're really, really, really well sought after in other building construction that we desperately need. So it's not like that job just completely Mm. disappears. It gets those skills get repurposed. And you know, it's just that there's so much money in the fossil fuel in the mines that draws people out from those other skill sets. I'm speaking on a very, very broad sense there. There are highly specialised skills in those areas, which will just simply start to become less and less relevant if we did move towards that that all-in renewables future. I think one of the great things which I like about scenario planning is it takes the fear away from these things. And again, if, if parents are interested in doing this with their kids, it's a great activity. I've done it with uh, older children. It tends to really be teenagers, you know, 15, 16 and above who, who can get value from this. But you basically, you draw two big axes, you create two extreme scenarios on either side about what the future might look like. 
And the game that I use when I'm working with children is make headlines, make headlines from the Telegraph, make headlines from the AFR, make headlines from, you know, the, I think Dolly Magazine is no, no longer in existence. Dolly era. Magazines are. <laughs> I don't even know that there's many magazines anymore. It's all TikTok. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Okay. Make a TikTok video uh, claim. Yeah. But, you know, what would be those clickbaity headlines? And by specifically targeting different types of, of journals, you will have intention between the positive and the negative, the outrageous doom and gloom and the hyperbole, you know, the world is fantastic. Yeah, I love that. And what that does is it shows that every crisis has a silver lining, you know, every cloud, yeah. <laughs> every cloud. That notion of never waste a good crisis is very, very real. And going back to that discussion around hope, it's another way which I use, uh, and by the way, I use this technique when working with senior executives in very large organisations. I, I believe that the actual technique came out of some military thinking uh, out of the US. But what it does is it forces you, by using extremes, it forces you out of that, I'm scared of the unknown. I'm going to lose what I got. It makes it very plain that there are two sides to this. It's your actions that decide which one's going to be the output. And that's the hardest scenario planning. So this is what I use when I'm looking at the future of work. But part of that was also looking at what jobs are just going to, they just will not survive what's happening with the technology revolution that we're, we're seeing, this relentless march of the robots. Mm. I think there's even a tool, and I'll have to look it up. I'm sure you've seen it or not, something online where you, you pop in your profession, job, whatever it is, and it predicts Ooh. whether or not it's going to continue to be there. Because I know when I, and it was a while ago that I looked at this, so I'll have to hunt it down and, and have another look, but we can put it in the show notes. But I put in psychologists that I said, yeah, there'll still be psychologists, you know, because there's still going to be people. So that wasn't a, a not considered to be an at-risk type role, but it was sort of an interesting exercise when you did. So I, you know, being who I am, curious person, came up with as many kind of job roles as I could think of to plug them all in and see. And yeah, you could see that, you know, there was certainly anything to do with people still existed, anything to do with, say, animals still, you know, most of what was kind of the natural world still existed, a lot of those sorts of professions. And then the things that were disappearing were the things that were going to be impacted largely by technology. And here's the interesting point. In our survey, we asked what was the number one skill set that you would need to be successful? Mm. And the number one skill set was communication. Mm. And that's the one thing that currently computers aren't good at. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're getting better, yeah. but genuine communication. There's an awful lot of human beings who are not very good at communication <laughs> either from the, the work that I do in workplaces. It's certainly one of those topics that mm -hmm. we do from the majority of skill-based learning around is how to be a better communicator. So it's no surprising that well, the, the robots haven't got there yet. There's a job of the future. Yep. <laughs> in fact, we also ask people to throw out some ideas of, of future jobs. And one of the ones which was put forward was neural linguist tutor. Basically, teaching computers how to be better at mm, talking. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, which is actually a real job. It's not called mm, that, but mm. in the areas of machine language translation, uh, there are people who spend their whole days just correcting the computer and making it learn how to think into a specific genre better. Yeah. So, communication just isn't about the words. It's about the empathy behind them. It's about the life experiences that are shared and the communication. That's a really interesting thing you said. I think that that actually may be one of the growth areas, <laughs> this idea of anything around communication. Mm. 
and care and compassion. And again, that's echoed in the what we were seeing for parents talking about what traits they were expecting would be the most successful, the enablers of success for their, for their kids. So maybe the parents are well ahead of us on this thinking. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. Well, we're just, yes, just being human, I guess. Being human. Human being human. So in that scenario, well, those those multiple scenarios in that whole context of thinking about, you know, what jobs will exist, what might not, what the opportunities are that come with that, and you talked a bit about using that scenario planning idea with parents as a, a, a tool for kind of getting them thinking that way, which, you know, in my mind is that that's a, a good critical thinking exercise or helping them to develop their, okay. yeah, their yeah. critical <laughs> thinking. Are there other things that parents can do or skills that we should be helping to develop in our kids now that will help us to maximise those opportunities, cope perhaps with this significant change? Yeah, look, that is a really, really tough question. We talked about some of the the, the immediate things that we can do to build hope and resilience and, and so forth. And I think resilience is the key here. The reality is we don't know what jobs are going to be deeply impacted. Some of them we do, absolutely. Anything in accounting, anything that require, that has been basically humans sitting over information and making a decision, that's going to move very much over towards computers. Anything to do with repeated, rapid decision-making, so that's driving, uh, piloting airplanes, um, gardening, all that stuff goes over to computers and robots. So what's left for us? And the reality is, we're not 100% sure because what is starting to happen now, and this sounds very terrifying, it's not, <laughs> I, I don't see this terrifying, is AI's artificial intelligence algorithms writing new automations, writing new AIs, if you think of it that way. And I've seen multiple examples of this where the AI is better at deciding what algorithm is, you know, what machine learning algorithm, AI. I'm, I'm using AI in a very broad sense here. Mm, mm. But what what type of AI is best for what problem? So now the AI experts are getting, getting their getting jobs second. <laughs> the software engineers are getting their job impacted. Yeah. Uh, one of the big fast-growing areas is this idea of low-code, no-code, which is where you use the computer to solve a business process, a business function, to automate something. In other words, make your job less... Mm. But you don't need a computer person to be involved with that. And, and that's a huge growing area. And it's just, you know, now AI has gotten into that. So the reality is we don't know how far this is going to go or how quick. And we don't know what the economic response will be, how businesses will respond to mm. this. Some of them will no doubt just cut huge swathes of middle management, probably upper management as well. But the person who delivers the post Will they be replaced by a drone? That depends on is the drone more expensive to maintain than the human mm. than the humans pay. Mm. So you know, there's a lot Complexity. of big question yeah. marks. Yeah. Yeah. So no, how do we build resilience so that no matter what that future looks like, our kids will will survive? That the resilience is the key. The sense that I get, I'm, I'm going to take that a little bit further because the sense that I get from everything you've just articulated in this whole conversation, really about this rapid pace of change and and a lot of uncertainty around that is, it comes back to this notion of anti-fragility. So more than mm. just resilience, you know, resilience is the new ability to bounce back in an experience of change, but really it's anti-fragility is, if you think about it as being the components of those two words, so fragile is something that breaks when it's put under pressure. You know, you, you drop it, 
shatters on the ground into a million pieces. Being anti-fragile means that, you know, under those circumstances, you don't break. You know, you can lean into that kind of uncertainty. You can lean into that stress that you've got what it takes as a I'm going to say an organism, just to extend that kind of metaphor or something that breaks, that you've got what it takes to be able to remain anti-fragile in, in the face of that change. So the evidence suggests that this is better for sustaining us long-term, that we need to benefit from rather than break from those experiences. Mm. And so it's about embracing change rather than resisting it, that whole notion of, yes, it will change. And that's a good thing because it'll bring opportunities. It'll bring something new. So going, parking back to our conversation about fear, that we should be helping and encouraging our kids to not fear change, but to, you know, lean into it, to use a bit of an overused term, but, you know, to, to embrace it. And that this is all part of helping to thrive when time's become tough, that we, we don't just kind of bounce back to where we were. We almost kind of bounce forward as a consequence. So there's a lot of kind of interesting mindset stuff in there about how we speak to ourselves and how we speak to our children about change. I remember having a conversation, and this was pre-COVID, we must have just been having a really busy period in our family life or something. I can't even remember exactly what the context was, but I distinctly remember sitting in the car with my eldest son, who was probably around 10 at the time. And he was asking me when things were going to go back to normal. You know, we just, we'd been busy, chaotic, it had been disruptive, a lot had been going on. And he said, when are things going to go back to normal? And in that moment, it, it sort of, mm. you know, it became crystal clear to me as I articulated it to him, mate, I think this is normal now. And it was sort of that <laughs> moment of, and look, we've all learned that through the COVID and the, the pandemic and all the changes that have come from that, that, you know, we talked about the new normal. So this idea that, yeah, we will keep moving and shifting, <laughs> but the best way to deal with that is just to accept that as we go along, to embrace that, to say, this has changed. I grow from this. I become less fragile as a result of this, even when it's tumultuous. And I'm wondering, uh, there's, again, a lot of experts in this. We did interview, I interviewed Dr. Paige Williams, on this, she has a book called Becoming Anti-Fragile. Um, we talked about that, uh, I want to say last year, but it could be the year before now. So I will link to that episode <laughs> in the show notes. The new normal is knowing not not knowing what year it is, I think. Yeah, well, <laughs> isn't it? it's very much the new normal. At this conference, I was just at the number of people who were talking about last year. Oh, was it last year? Maybe it was the year before. Was it? Let's well, just refer before. to everything as last year and next year because <laughs> we don't know. Yeah, so, you know, mm. a, a lot of people, a lot of interesting work being done in this notion of, of anti-fragile. Agility. So for anyone listening who wants to kind of perhaps skill themselves as role models for skilling their kids in how to lean into change and, and become less fragile mm. in response to it. There's an interesting book. It's a little bit controversial. I think it was called Elitism, and I'll, I'll look up the details and, and get them over. But what was interesting is in that book, it was arguing that children who are very intelligent, you know, the, the elite students, one of the challenges that we have is that in a traditional education system, they don't suffer setbacks. They just mm. fail through. And as a result, they're never, he calls it, humiliated. Mm. <laughs> you know, mm. That's a brutal yeah. way. I think he was choosing the very, very the author was choosing the very carefully. And therefore, they become disconnected with what it means to struggle. They become very fragile and uh, quite often uh, not the happiest people in the world. So there was a whole discussion in this book. Yes, the book was controversial. Definitely, there are some things in the book that I didn't fully agree with. But I think here, there's a real point that, that I did take from the book that I think is very true. 
The best education happens when you struggle 20% of the time. Mm. In other words, if you're acing every single test, you're not being tested. If you're coming in around the 80% mark, you're really stretching. And if you come in much below that, then probably the education's not working. <laughs> so it's not you that's mm, dumb, it's the education. Yeah. So there's some really interesting research around that area that I think ties to this notion of anti-fragility. But for me, when I look at what the parents can do, I think it's important to learn from educational theories around this and applying this anti-fragility sort of layer over the top of it. I think it's really important that parents engage with the school or certainly engage with their students through the school in creating authentic tasks like challenges for the kids. Well, that could be one of my uh, family uh, members, their son is, um, has got a Twitch channel and has actually grown that to be quite a popular thing. He's got his whole persona and so forth. And he got an early acceptance into a media communications degree, which is what he desperately wanted. Mm -hmm. So this idea of, of setting these challenges, making them genuinely challenging and he, you know, huge setbacks while he was working through that channel, find out what works. Push your children to the point of, I wouldn't say breaking, but push them to small crises, mm. you know, big goals, small crises. That real feeling of frustration. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because they're going to face that later on in life and they're going to face it big mm. time. And knowing that they can walk through that and be successful, if not as successful as they had originally anticipated, Hugely important. And I think that's a really good example of this notion of anti-fragility. I'm conscious that I didn't explain it particularly well, but this idea that it's not about, it's a complex thing, mm. certainly in the psychological world. I don't believe that there is even agreed to definition of what resiliency is. So, you know, it's <laughs> kind of hard to articulate the difference. But that by going through those periods of frustration, by discovering your resources through that problem-solving experience, by coming at the other end, even if it wasn't quite exactly where you wanted to be, you are building up this anti-fragility, you are building up this kind of robustness. It's in your toolkit. It's there for every time that you need it. You know from the experience. And I always, and I can't believe it took me a long time before I discovered this, but the little saying that says failure is first attempt in learning. Yes. <laughs> which I only came across relatively recently and I love it and yes, I use it all the I time. So, phrase. And that's very much, you know, that's the growth mindset. Um, Carol Dweck's work, yeah. this idea that, you know, we we don't learn through success. We learn through, call it failure, a concept that I talk struggle. about. Struggle. Uh, struggle. Struggle's probably a better term for it really through actually. Through play yeah. and yeah. struggle. Exploration yeah. and problem solving and coming out the other end. Yeah. Just to put a sort of like a, a humorous spin on this, uh, my daughter once said to me when she was quite young, what doesn't kill you either makes you stronger or bitter and twisted. It's your choice. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite insightful for a small child. <laughs> she was a very insightful, wise, beyond her years child. Uh, scarily so. But that's all those good Edward de Bono games and mm. all that uh, scenario mm. planning we, we did with her. Okay, so look, let, let's take a look. Let's drill down a little bit then. And uh, I'm looking for your thoughts on... The parents came through with a whole bunch of traits which they thought would, would help their mm. kids in the future. And listening to, I think, some of those aligned to this notion of anti-fragility. Certainly, um, flexible thinking was a big one. It was, I think it was the number one. And I know in anti-fragility there's this notion of non-linear mm. thinking. Can you, can you unpack that a bit? Oh, goodness, putting me on the spot there, but that's okay. I'll do my best. Yeah. So, well, 
interesting because we were having a conversation off air that I won't drill down into (laughs) particularly, but I think one of the challenges, so faced with any problem, we have a tendency to think, well, not all of us, some of us have a tendency to think in a kind of linear fashion from my experience, when X happens, then Y will happen and therefore I will get this result. So we get fixed in these kind of ways of thinking or thinking about a problem or solving a problem that is born from our experience, even this notion of, you know, the past being a best predictor of the future. Well, it doesn't necessarily hold true. (laughs) So just because something worked for you in the past. In physics, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, well, exactly. But in the world, perhaps not. So (laughs) if, if I always do what I've always done, I'll never get a different outcome. So if you're looking for a different outcome, you've got to come at a problem from a different set of perspectives. You've got to think about it differently. Now, one of the things that I've learned as a great way to do this, certainly in the workplace, has been to get the input of other people. So as somebody who's always been quite independent and a bit determined to solve all my own problems on my own, no matter what they are, sometimes to my detriment, learning to actually say, right, just because I think of this situation in a particular way, and these have been my experiences, and that's what feeds into how I will go about solving it, is not necessarily going to be the best outcome. What to other people who have different life experiences, who think about these things differently, what input would they provide? How, you know, what would their perspective add to this? And so I don't know that's necessarily the best definition of nonlinear thinking, but it's certainly one of the tools that we can use to come at problem solving in a way that might create a different outcome. Mm, so it's, it's mm. just, it's, it's not thinking in a straight line, basically. It's trying to not think about things in, uh, based on our own experience of what's always worked in the past and, and test and learn, try something different. That's probably one of my favourite ways to think about it. Yeah, I think that's really important. And, and I do believe that, you know, schools make some attempt at that, but in reality, a lot of classes still are taught, and this is one of the weaknesses, a lot of teachers still teach linear mm. thinking. And the reason for that is is, is quite simple. You know, they have to have a curriculum mm. that covers all, 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 all students. So it's, it's You learn almost, this and you learn that and you learn the other. and It's, it's, yeah. it's almost baked in. But they, there are definitely um, efforts to provide plenty of creative, nonlinear thinking, some very explicit. I know some of the work from Edward de Bono, the six thinking hats and so forth was used in the past, less so now. But I think it's important that parents do try to engage their their kids in that. One of the little techniques which I encourage parents to do is play games where the answers are intended to be the most idiotic wrong answer, but that still makes Mm. sense. And uh, that's hugely useful for getting the sort of playful, not being so tied to how something must be. In fairness, I'd also say that that is in itself is a type of formulatic <laughs> linear thinking in terms of, you know, this is how you should teach linear thinking. Yeah, if you really want to interrogate it down to the... <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's, a fun, it's yeah. a fun game. I also think that one of the other big things which I'm picking up from this is we need to be helping our kids understand that there are consequences, some of which are outside of their control and some which are absolutely inside of their control. How they react, I know it sounds very cheap, but how you react is the ultimate Mm. consequence. But teaching that is actually pretty hard. So again, playing games, this is where I like the, uh, um, I developed um, many, many years ago, a game called Story Weaver. It became my little hobby business, which was a kid's game role-playing game like Dungeons and Dragons and that sort of stuff, but designed for children around the age of six explicitly to teach morality. 
to teach the consequences of your actions. So needless to say, it wasn't a game about running around with big swords mm. hitting monsters. <laughs> it was a game of trying to run around and solve problems. And uh, if there were monsters, avoid them or at least arrest them. So it was a very, you know, morale mm. game. And I think that that teaching consequences through play is incredibly important, but it can't be, the consequence can't be so traumatizing, even inside the game, because kids who are this young, they don't separate. Mm. Their brains do not separate the story from reality very well. So the consequences have to be proportionate. I remember I was running some of these game sessions in a children's hospital, and one of the little boys got so excited because, quite frankly, he'd been sitting in in the hospital ward for something like four Mm. months, (laughs) little seven-year-old, and he just wanted to leap through the trees and hack everything with his magic sword and create total mayhem. So we let him do that to the point in this particular scenario where everyone was just standing and watching him and judging him. And you could see the little kid, he stopped. Now, it wasn't that, you know, the big dragon came out and beat him up and killed him or anything like that. It was literally, you're not doing what everybody wants you to do. You're being the horrible person. And we don't like that as a community. And that was a real valuable lesson. You could actually see the wheels Mm. turning in his head. So I think this idea of second-order thinking or teaching consequences in a friendly manner is super important for this notion of anti-fragility. And we can do that in a really practical way as parents too. One of the things that I always encourage because we talk a lot about consequences in our family and not in that kind of, you know, the consequence of you doing that will be this. It is, you know, you think about what the consequences, you've got a choice here, which way do we want to go? What are the consequences of, of yeah. taking this path versus taking that path? And whether that's the conversation I had with my 14-year-old last night about wanting to buy himself a pair of expensive sneakers. <laughs> it was like, well, just think about, you know, what are your options? What, what's the opportunity cost of that money spent on one pair of sneakers? Are there two other pairs of sneakers that don't cost as much that you'd also like? So, you know, from a practical sense, but for me, it's about role modeling. So yes, if you can actually, and, and I will do this, you know, I have days where I've gone to bed too late, I've sat up working or I've done something and I'm feeling pretty weary the next day. And to be open and honest with my kids and go, you know what? I'm feeling really ordinary. Today is hard. And I know it's hard because of the choices that I made last night. These are the consequences. Now, I'm not, I don't overlay that with a it's right or it's wrong. It's just is what it is. And I made a choice. And, you know, the choice might have been I'm going to stay up and work because I want to get this thing done. But today I feel pretty ordinary as a consequence. So, you know, when we're talking to them about what time they go to bed and whether or not they choose to keep mucking around or going to sleep, just think about how you might be feeling in the morning. That's the consequence of that. So just, you know, a bit yes. of prediction, a bit of thinking it through without yeah. any value judgment just role modeling the thought processes. Yeah. I I think role modeling is hugely important since we know that that has a a massive impact on how children think about learning as well. That takes us back to that, you know, I think it was one of the first episodes I said, read to your kids Mm. from the age of zero to seven. Just read, read, read to them. (laughs) Demonstrate that you like to read as well. I think that's hugely Mm. important. What do you think about then modeling? Because one of the things with anti-fragility is that, you know, when I hear that, I usually think of, I am a rock. Mm. Now, this probably Mm. comes from my generation. You know, I'm a rock. I'm strong. I will not break. And it's very isolating. But what do you think is the role of, and I think our youth is actually much more aware of this than possibly even I am, of leaning on their community, you know, the gratitude that you have with your friends, that support. What's the role of that in in all of this? Look, 
teens in particular are incredibly social. It's that point of development where they're really starting to connect Mm. with other people and those relationships, which are so important. And that can obviously have some challenging effects, as as we know from lots of conversations, certainly from generations gone by from, you know, our day when we were younger about peer group pressure and those sorts of things. It's got you know, wonderful. We know that connection and belonging is such an incredible piece of people's well-being, you know, feeling that we are not isolated, feeling that we have others around us, that we can lean on others. I think probably as a parent, I would overlay that with that consequence conversation. And I know certainly in psychology, we talk a lot about having, you know, actually being a little bit critical about the people that you're surrounding yourself with. Are they helping you or are they hindering you? And not that they would consciously hinder you, but if you are absorbed in a peer group, whether an adult or a child, where the behaviour isn't really the behaviour that sits with you and your values, or you see perhaps consequences of some of the behaviour that you don't necessarily want to get yourself involved in, or if it just doesn't feel good. I think that's one of those conversations, you know, you want to come away from having conversations and spending time with people who make you feel like the best version of yourself. And if you're coming away from those conversations where you feel like a less than version of yourself or you feel uncomfortable or you feel icky or you just, you know, it's that little critical thinking piece that we can sit around those conversations with kids about peers and relationships because Mm. you do get a choice in that. And that's not an easy choice, even for grown-ups, let alone children or, or teens and adolescents. But at least getting the idea of, you know, there will be people and and pay attention, you know, that kind of mindfulness piece around pay attention. How do I feel when I spend time with these person or these people versus how do I spend feel when I spend time with perhaps a, a different group? And explicitly talking with your kids, how old do you think it is before you can start to have those conversations with your children? I think you can make them age appropriate. Our mm. awareness of otherness, you know, that kind of social element as I understand it, and this is, you know, it's been a long time since I studied child development, but as I understand it kicks in around the kind of eight to ten year mark. Prior yeah, to that, yeah. they don't get the social cues. It starts merging around yeah, seven, seven, yeah. ten. So somewhere yeah. in there where they start to appreciate. And you can see that in your own kids. You see it from the conversations you have yes. where they start to say, Mum, what do you think this person thinks about me? Or, or even I remember mm. my eldest son who's a very physical kid, they kind of had to do this physical pecking order sorting out where the boys all just kind of punched each other. <laughs> like <laughs> was a period at the beginning of about grade four where they were just literally, and it was almost like oh, it was part of them sorting out their pecking order. I don't know. It was weird, but yeah. <laughs> I could say some very choice things about that. I will not. But yeah, look, I, I think this is really important because later on in life when, when your kids are facing this very uncertain future, there's going to be opportunities to work in areas that are not really good for them. Yeah, it's just not mm. a good fit. Mm. Let's call it that way. Let's be polite and say it's not a good fit. And then knowing, having the the skill sets at a very early age to know that they can talk about this, think about it and make a very clear decision. I think that's incredibly important. If not for, you know, not falling into a, a situation that's going to be awful for them, but just not putting them in a sort of situation where they're going to, to mm. break. So I think that's really, really important. One of the things which does prompt me this, though, is we talked at last episode, um, I, I mentioned that I've recently been diagnosed with ADHD, and that was sort of a aha moment, yeah, duh. But I deal with a lot of folks in the IT community who are on the spectrum or who have other neurodivergencies. Uh, I'm very dyslexic, 
So I'm, you know, it's a bit of a hot topic for me. And sometimes just dealing with this otherness, and it can be otherness in terms of neurodiversity, which is what I see a lot of, or gender is another big otherness inside the IT industry, certainly in Australia. But all of these these areas, how do we as parents work with our children to think about, uh, let's call it diversity and inclusion, which it's a word which gets a little bit abused or a phrase that gets a little bit abused at the moment. But how do we work with our kids to think about that and think about where they fit within this very diverse future workforce? Mm, That's such an interesting Mm. question. I think my observation is that it's not so much about the kids because I think they're immersed in that world in a way that we never were. When I Mm. think about the conversations that I have with my children about gender, about neurodiversity, they're having those conversations both through school. So I think there's probably an educational element in there. It's almost just a world that they're growing up with. So it's, you know, when I kind of try to position it, so what do you think about this? And they're like, duh, mum, you know, everybody gets that. Why is this a thing for you? Yeah, I, I, I very much get that sense as well. But I think it's just that it's a, it's a gap. So it's probably for parents about actually becoming more educated in, you know, what, what your kids are watching, what they're learning, mm. who they hear from what conversation they're being had, don't do it through the lens of the media that you normally engage in because it's probably the wrong generation. Super important. Do it through the lens that they're seeing it in. And the other thing that was really interesting to me regarding the neurodiversity was the YouTube community. There's an awful lot of people who are both embracing and acknowledging and sharing their experience of being neurodiverse in all of its forms. And I always struggle a bit with the term neurodiversity because I come from a background in what we call individual difference in psychology. So the exploration and understanding, while psychology is generally the the science of, you know, understanding how all humans behave and what makes us similar, individual difference starts to explore how do we differ on a number, whether that's personality, intelligence, Mm. specific abilities, whatever it might be. So the lens through which I've seen people has always been, we are all incredibly unique and different. No two of us are the same. So this idea that you, like, we're all (laughs) neurodiverse, we all think differently, we all feel differently. Yeah, there will be commonalities, but I think we're, you know, but that it's celebrated, it's shared, it's discussed. It's just so much part of the conversation mm. that they're already in. And it's, it's probably us as older, well, especially for older parents, catching up. Grumpy old bald white men, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> or, or old women who feel a little out of touch sometimes, but are very happy to listen to what my kids tell me yeah. and, and to embrace that and to not kind of push against that and say, oh, no, that's not how. It's yes. like, this is your world. This is the world you're in. You share it with me so that I can have, you know, a better insight and understanding and start speaking the language that you're already immersed in. That gives me huge hope. I'm smiling ear to ear when I hear that. And I think you're right. But also what you're saying to me, Trinity, to think about, you know, when we talk about those scenarios, that what that future work is going to look like, we do know that the fastest growing, most effective, most productive organisations are those that truly embrace diversity and inclusion. They mm-hmm. truly embrace, you know, policies of wellness for their staff. And I think what we will see is, yes, we'll see the growth of gig and all those sort of other areas, but we'll also see, I think, a lot more organisations really starting to live into what our children are wanting to make the world. Mm. And, you know, that goes back to that very first issue. Really easy to predict where the technology is. (laughs) A lot of jobs are going to go, but wow, aren't there going to be a huge number of jobs in this area of just being better 
people and making the world a better place. I hope so. And and I know that sounds trivial and no. very hippie, but actually that's where the money's going to be. That's where the economy will be mm. in the future as we move through this this pretty challenging time. Yeah. Look, as somebody who works at the intersection of workplaces and well-being and increasingly community and mm. meaning and purpose and, and all of those pieces as they fit together and, and as a workplace like, it's massive. And if we can do it in the way that we hope we can do it and predict we can do it, it'll be a, mm. an incredible shift in people's experience of the world and work. And, you know, I think we're, we're poised for some pretty exciting things. You certainly are. I think we should probably finish that one there, Joe, because we that's been, that that's been yeah. quite a long and wide-ranging conversation, but fascinating conversation as always. And we will put, we've, we've Lynch mentioned a lot of resources today. So we'll put all of those in the show notes for our listeners to explore a little further. And we will be back next episode with our final conversation in this series. And we're going to talk about some of the fun stuff, some of the fun predictions about technology and the world of work and the things that we might see in our future. And I'm really looking forward to it. Me too. Thank you. Thank you for being here, for listening in, for sharing that conversation with Joe with me. We are almost at the end of this special series of the Potential Psychology Podcast with Dr. Joe Sweeney. We only have one conversation left to go, but if you've been enjoying the series and you'd like further tips, do keep an eye out on our socials, Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook. We're sharing snippets of the research that Joe and his team have undertaken to support this podcast series. And the fabulous Jay, who works for both Joe and I, has done an amazing job of putting all of the resources together for this series of the show. And that includes downloadable tip sheets, which you'll find on our website, potential.com.au forward slash podcast, as well as the graphics that explain the research and our usual snippets from the interviews that you'll see on the social channels. And if you haven't checked it out already, we do have a link to a fun Q&A with Joe in the show notes and our interactive show features if you're listening on Spotify or Anchor, including our Q&A and voice messages via Anchor. That's at anchor.fm forward slash potential psychology. It is a great way to ask a question either of Joe or I, or maybe you have a great suggestion for a topic you'd like to see me cover on the show. Please do let me know over on those channels. We'd also love it if you could rate and review the Potential Psychology Podcast on whichever platform you're listening in on. It's amazingly helpful feedback for us and it does ensure that the word gets out about the show and the great guests who share their wisdom and time and insights with us. And finally, don't forget that you can now become a special VIP member of the Potential Psychology Podcast community with access to our bonus episodes. You'll find more at our website, potential.com.au or at anchor.fm forward slash potential psychology forward slash subscribe. And in our upcoming final conversation, Joe and I, discussing the future of work, we'll be having a bit of fun exploring the kind of modern new age jobs that might appear in our kids' future. Things like robot consultants and AI prompt developers. It's all a little bit speculative, but it is a lot of fun. And that's our next and final conversation for this series. In fact, the final podcast conversation for the year for the Potential Psychology Podcast. It's coming up soon in your ears. And while you're waiting for that, please stay safe, stay well, and take small steps to fulfil your potential. 